In this episode of Mastering Public Service, we interview Justin Stowe, the Legislative Post Auditor for the State of Kansas. In other words, he's the head of the Kansas Legislative Division of Post Audit, a nonpartisan audit arm of the Kansas Legislature. As he discusses, the organization seeks to inform policymakers by providing unbiased information and oversight about state programs. Justin has his MPA degree from Kansas State University and is a real champion of the program, and we do discuss with him why he thinks the MPA is so important. But first, we begin by discussing the role of the Legislative Division of Post Audit and how they interact with various parts of state government. Our conversation then goes on to discuss the many ways public organizations can adapt to meet the needs of their constituencies and how these changes are becoming even more important during a pandemic. We then discuss the ways the workplace has changed over its time at the Legislative Post Audit and some of the innovative changes that they have made to make the workplace better for everyone. I think this is a really interesting discussion about what it's like working for a state agency and all the ways in which that agency is trying to be innovative in the ways they provide services to the public, but also provide a better work environment for those within the organization. I hope you enjoy it. On Mastering Public Service, we have uh, Justin Stowe along with me, Ethan Burnick, and Brianne Highbrider. Um, and Justin is a graduate of the MPA program at Kansas State. Um, I don't want to say mo more importantly, but importantly, he also works for uh, the uh, Kansas government. And he is his official title is the Legislative Post Auditor, and uh, it. As he'll talk about, it's a little ambiguous what that means, but uh, he does a lot of really cool stuff that I think you'll really enjoy. And Justin's joined us numerous times in on our in our classes. Um, he's been a really good uh, friend and uh, sort of supporter of the MPA program. So uh, welcome, Justin. Uh, really glad you could join us today. Yeah, thanks, Ethan. Glad to be here as usual. Yeah. So as we do in all of these, we like to start off these interviews, these discussions, asking you to discuss your career. How did you get to where you are? Why did you get there? Um, sort of the path you took. Um, why the present position? So I'm going to let you sort of jump in and discuss discuss you. Sure. So my my path to the MPA program and then to legislative post audit where we're currently uh, is maybe a little bit unorthodox. So I, I started in Kansas State in uh, actually business. That was kind of my initial interest, right? So I, I started there um, thinking that I wanted to, to be, you know, uh, a kingpin in the, the corporate world, right? So I had these, these visions of being some multimillionaire someday, right, sitting at the top of a high rise. Uh, and in fact, I took an internship uh, in New York City. So I, I was working on Park Avenue, working for Canon Business Solutions, right? The, the color copier and, and photography company. Um, loved New York City, uh, hated the business experience. Every second of it, I, I, it, it was very disenfranchising to me. Uh, I came away feeling like it was all about the money and uh, that it was very disorganized and chaotic. And it just basically didn't reflect anything that I thought the business would. So. I actually came back from that experience. I think that was around my junior year. 
and I quit college. That was my that was my response uh, because I was so disenfranchised with the whole experience. Um, and and one of my college buddies at the time uh, came to me and said, "Look, you've, you've been doing this for three years. You shouldn't waste three years of your time and education. Right? You need to go get this done." But he said, "If you can't if you can't stomach business anymore, he's like, try to figure out what it is that you want to do." So. For me, it, it turns out that that was political science electives. Those were the classes that I had always taken, um, had always been interested. Anytime I had a chance for an elective, it was always in poli science. So I went back, re-enrolled in the political science program and instantly fell in love with it. Right? So graduated with, with my bachelor's in political science and then realized that that, that didn't really have, wasn't necessarily means to an end. So that, they, you know, unless I wanted to get to go further in it, um, there wasn't much there. So then my, my brother actually recommended that I look at the MPA program because that was kind of a blend between political science and business administration, right? Kind of that perfect marriage of public sector uh, and political science. So uh, that's that's how I ended up at uh, K-State's MPA program, instantly fell in love with it, um, just felt very much at home and like it was like the perfect combination of everything that I'd been interested in. Um, and then in terms of how that led me to legislative post audit, I was actually in my, it was maybe early on my first year of the MPA program, and we had invited the former uh, legislative post author, Barb Hinton, to come and provide a presentation to the MPA program on a massive uh, audit that they had done. It was actually in 2006, and it was about the cost of K-12 education uh, in the state, how much it should cost Kansas to provide adequate K-12 education. Uh, and I remember just being blown away by Barb's presentation. I just felt like it was the smartest, most articulate, most kind of awe-inspiring piece of analytical work I'd ever heard about. And she just presented it so confidently and so smoothly and, and just broke this massive project down. And I remember walking away thinking, I've got to go work for that lady, uh, right? So so it turns out uh, I got a chance to late. I got an internship with post audit. So I'd let uh, Krishna Tamala, who was my, my major professor at the time, know that I was interested. Uh, he connected me with legislative post audit, uh, and we kind of fell in love with each other in terms of I, I loved their work and what they did, and they liked me as, a, as a, kind of an intern, and so they offered me a job, and the rest is history. That's really cool to hear that you were kind of introduced to legislative post audit while you were a student at the, in the MPA program, because we've seen how that is working right now. You've come and given presentations. You know, it's kind of come full circle because you come and give presentations for our students and also get them interested in interning or potentially working for legislative post audit. So with that in mind, can you talk a bit about what legislative post audit does? Um, you know, what are you asked to do and kind of what is your role in the organization? Sure, so we work for the Kansas legislature. So that, that is the first part out of it. The executive, judicial, and legislative branches, we're in the legislative branch. We are a legislative staff agency. More specifically, we work for the Legislative Post Audit Committee. So that is a 10-person bipartisan committee. So it's got both Republicans and Democrats, and it's got both House members and senators. So we've got five senators, five House members. Uh, we've got six Republicans and four Democrats, right? So they're the ones that really direct our work. They're actually the ones that appoint me. So I'm in an appointed position. Uh, my appointment is for life. So there's no term limits or anything on my, my position. Uh, it actually takes a seven, uh, seven out of 10 votes to remove me from my position. Uh, that is done intentionally. If you count, again, the, the Republicans versus Democrats, that ensures that all of the Republicans and at least one Democrat would have to vote me out of office. Right. So that's to protect me from anything that is 
clearly partisan, right? So if it's just about partisan politics, and I had a lot of report that they don't like for political reasons, it, there's almost no chance they're going to be able to get a member of the minority party to go along for that type of reason. Right? So, so we work for the post audit committee. What we, but what we really are there to do is provide information to the entire legislature on whether government is being efficient and whether it's being effective. Um, so efficient is obviously just making good use of resources, right? Like, are we are we spending taxpayer money in the best possible ways? Um, are we making sure that we are, you know, prudent stewards of that, that money that we're, you know, not being lavish in our expenditures and we're using it for the right things? And then, of course, effectiveness is, are we achieving the outcomes that the various government programs are intended to achieve, right? So um, so we, we look at almost every imaginable aspect of that type of idea at the state and even the local level occasionally, right? So Kansas has roughly a hundred some state agencies. So that goes from anything from large like Department of Transportation down to like the Board of Cosmetology, right? So we have kind of a very big spread of different government. We can audit any of them. We can audit local school districts. We can, we have actually audited the university system. Uh, so basically anything that is either state created or kind of within the jurisdiction of state government, we can look at counties, city governments, we can look at. Um, so that's that's what we do for them. We, we produce about uh, anywhere between 12 to 15 auto reports a year. So that's the main product that we're providing. Um, and, and essentially our role for them, um, what, they, what they're asking for really is unbiased opinion on these issues, right? So the legislators are constantly getting information all the time from either agency officials or from lobbyists or from constituents. Uh, or from each other, uh, but almost always, right, those folks have some type of dog in the fight. So they're looking at things from a certain angle, they have a certain perspective. Um, what they're really looking to us for is independence, right? We're going to come in as a neutral party, as the auditors, and we're going to try to comment on whether this thing's working or not without any concern for what that might mean politically, how, how popular it is, how unpopular it is. We're just going to come and try to tell you the truth, right? Uh, straight, unvarnished, directly. Um, so that's, that's kind of really what they're asking of us is their legislative audit staff. Do you, um, do you see things changing either, um, and I'm not, we'll talk about sort of your, the, the work environment, but in terms of the sort of the auditing that you're doing, do you ever see a, um, sort of the work you're asked to do changing, whether it's during a, a, an election year or even, even because of now, because of all the, the COVID stuff, has has what you're being asked to do changed at all? So it does. I mean, you see some themes, right? Um, so, I, of course, you know, because the legislature is a political animal, there, you know, there's always some politics involved, right? Um, so, I, you know, I think everything that we get asked to do in some way, shape, or form has some type of ties to some political angle, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats, right? That's always on their mind and it's always something think about. Um, that said, I think they do a pretty good job, actually, in my committee, and this is God's truth, of, of being pretty, I mean, they work and play pretty well together, right? They try to acknowledge the other side's concerns. Every once in a long while, we'll have an audit that gets voted down on party lines, so it'll be a 6-4 split, right? It's all the Republicans on one side and all the Democrats on the other. Um, what, what I tend to see more maybe than, than trends like, not, I don't really see much when it comes to like election years per se, but what I do see sometimes are like, it's more what the hot button issue of the, of the hour is, right? So foster care, for example, has been a really big deal um, in the last couple of years. So 
you know, it's a, we, we are actually currently been tasked with a pretty large foster care audit. We, we're going to be looking at whether the case plans that are prepared for parents who have lost the custody of their children to the state, whether, you know, how those plans are developed, how the Department for Children and Families is holding parents accountable, whether that seems reasonable, all that type of stuff, right, which is one of just many audits we've done on the foster care system in the past couple of years. Um, you know, when you mentioned COVID specifically, I, I know for sure, uh, you know, several audits have come and will be coming from that. So one that we are actually looking at right now, and this is, again, another big ticket issue, is the Kansas Department of Labor's unemployment system, right? So not surprisingly, we've had this massive spike, not only Kansas, but every state in the union, right? Nationally, across the board, uh, unprecedented levels of unemployment claims, like when they graph it against like the Great Depression, right? The spike is, I don't know, the New York Times, I think, had a fantastic graphic, and it was just like mind-boggling how many more. So they're going to have us on it. They want us to look at, you know, how did we handle that spike? Were we prepared for it or not? I mean, knowing that, of course, no one could have been totally prepared for it, right? Um, and they actually added on another piece, which is to kind of look at how Kansas is being affected by fraud, because we all know that uh, Kansas, like so many other states, there's been a lot of fraudsters that have identified this big spike in unemployment claims as an opportunity to file fake claims. And that's, you know, that's a lot of the local news you'll read about people complaining that their identities have been stolen and that a unemployment claim has been filed in their name, even though they're currently working. And that, that's happening here in Kansas and nationally. So that's one major way that COVID's affecting us specifically is that it's, it's affected unemployment claims and they've asked us to go dive into that thing. The other thing that's coming for sure is going to be audits and evaluations of all this CARES Act money, right? That's just, it's just pouring in by the billions. <laughs> Um, and this happened with air funding. If, if you remember, recall back to, uh, you know, former President Obama's administration during the 2009 recession, we had all that, that funding come in and flowing is the same thing. This always makes, you know, auditors' hands clammy, right? When we realize that the feds are just dumping massive amounts of money, which, which we recognize is probably necessary and important, right? But it's like, who is watching all of that money? Who is making sure that it's being spent correctly? Uh, you know, on the right things in the right places. Uh, and it's it's a real challenge. Um, so I have no doubt at some point we're going to get some audit requests asking us to go back and look at how this CARES Act funding was spent, who, you know, who was guiding those decisions, what was it spent on, was that okay? You know, I, I'm almost certain uh, that that'll be something we'll be looking at down the road, you know, once it's all said and done. Yeah, you're not going to, you're not going to, uh, be hard pressed to find some work to do. No, we're very busy. <laughs> yeah, I'm very busy. Yeah. Um. So, before we started, we were talking about your your. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit. We were talking about you being in your office, and a lot of the people that you weren't work. You know, a lot of the people in your office weren't there, and that you have a few things. And one of the things we did want to talk about because you've done, you've talked about this. Um, I don't know, almost every time, but almost every time you've come to talk is about how you've really tried to rethink sort of the work environment. And that's really one of the reasons we wanted you on. And so, um, and so I really, I thought it was interesting sort of the kinds of things you're seeing trend-wise going beyond COVID. And we can talk a little bit about that, but how things have changed in terms of the sort of the work environment more, more general, generally and like, what can governments and state governments in particular do to sort of make it sort of, I don't know, sleeker or more appealing or whatever. So 
Um, so what have you seen or what are you all doing? You know, in our, in our office, you know, I gave this some thought in preparation for a talk today. And, and to me, what this what this really boils down to, what we're trying to do in our office, and, and I'm, I'm grateful to see this happening more frequently all the time, I feel like, in government, is to really adapt a, or take on a customer service orientation, right? To really view the general public, and in our case, the legislature, as a customer, right? There's, there's a lot about the private sector I do not like. I'm very glad to be in public sector service for a lot of reasons, right? And I find it to be very meaningful uh, to provide a lot of that, uh, you know, some of that fundamentally, I'm doing something of value and, and contributing to society in a way that, that makes me feel like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing something valuable with my life. Um, I like kind of the slow, we are a slower paced organization for sure, right? I'm not going to work people 65 hours here so that they can make partner and draw, you know, half, you know, 500 thousand dollar salary like that's it we're just not about that type of angle but one thing i really do value from the private sector is that idea of, of customer orientation right focusing on your customers and making sure that they receive the best possible product the best possible service uh, that you can provide them so you know in, in our office lately um that's we've been trying to orient a lot of what we do with that in mind, right? Like, let's think more from our customers' view of the world. What this, you know, how does our audit reports hitting them? And what we recognized is that our office, like so many other audit offices across the nation, we were providing these or producing these like 50 to 60 page PDF audit reports, right? They were super detailed, super nuanced. They were written at a pretty high level, like when postgraduate level, right? So if you put those in like a grade reading level, uh, whether using Hemingway Editor or some of these, you know, Grammarly or some of these other ones that are available, it would come in at, you know, 14, 15, 16, you know, grade level type of, of language that we're using. Big words, fancy words, sophisticated language. Uh, and they're really long, you know, just thick, long reports. So we, we decided that that just, that wasn't meeting the needs of our customer, that that is just too much for them to handle, right? They get, they get overwhelmed with information and they just didn't have the time to sit through and read through a 16 page audit report uh we didn't even hardly have time for that right that's how we felt about it uh, we barely could have that much time much less them and they they get way more of that so in the last couple of years we've taken a couple steps to try to make our product more accessible one of those is podcasts so we're doing that ourselves right that was that was an idea that one of uh, our staff members had he came to me and said hey i think we should do we should start offering a podcast version of every audit report that we put together and I was like, okay, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm generally warm to that idea. I like innovation. Let's try it out. What I failed to see at the time, and it has now become painfully obvious, is what a huge niche that fills for legislators who spend a huge amount of their time driving from their hometown into Topeka, right? <laughs> and so they yeah. told me like, hey, now I don't have to spend my evenings trying to read through your thick auto reports. I just download all your podcasts on my phone and I Bluetooth it as I'm driving every, you know, three hours from Concordia to, you know, two and a half hours or whatever from Hayes or Concordia, whatever. And so now I can catch up on everything that you guys are doing. And I, I'm not wasting all that road time, right? So it's been a huge hit with because it's just saving them time. Like the time that they wouldn't have, they had just been on the road, not able to use that. And then they'd have to do it on nights and weekends or whatever they could find time. So, you know, that's that's been a big hit with them. Um, it's been a big hit actually with some of our fellow uh, legislative staff. So we have researchers here and then we have the lawyers here that also serve the legislature, right? And they often need to kind of be up to speed with our work because bills are being written, you know, legislation is being drafted, questions are being asked that relate to our work. So it saves them time in the same way. 
so that's that's been a big hit. Uh, you know, we do it in a kind of kind of like we're doing this podcast today. It's it's very interactive, so it's question and answer. We used to do like an abridged audio book version of our reports. Uh, we quickly walked away from that. I mean, we we just didn't feel like that was that was doing much better. Right? Then you had to listen to the whole lot of being read out loud, which which wasn't quite the thing. So, you know, we we evolved pretty quickly. So now it's very question and answer. Like, hey, you know, we actually the supervisor of the audit is the one kind of in charge of answering all the questions. We have a couple of folks, Andy and Brad in our office that put those together. So they just interview the supervisors, say, hey, why didn't you just audit? You know, what were the big key issues? What did you find? You know, very colloquial back and forth. The other thing, the other big step we took, and this one I'm really proud of, I mean, podcasts are awesome, but the, probably a much harder step that we took is we moved our reports from being uh, natively Word PDF documents, right, to native HTML. So our reports now actually live in native HTML on our website. They're their own, each report's its own web page. Uh, and that's not, so it's not when you, you know, when you're looking at it, you can read it in, in native HTML. That has a lot of advantages. What that allows us to do is, of course, create links to other content, just like a journalist would, right? So all the online subscriptions that you see, it allows us to add audio and video right into our audit reports natively. You can access it on your mobile device much easier than a PDF that you have to open up and like do the little scroll thing with, right? With your fingers, try to kind of figure out where the content's out. So it, it's scalable, it moves around. Um, and it's also allowed us to start to play with some really innovative, like interactive charts, right? Like you see at the New York Times, uh, where you go out there and you can, we can actually show our data and then people can highlight a, a segment of the bar chart and it will break out the individual components. So. You know, all of that's being done to hopefully make our product more accessible. We also, in order to move them to HTML, we didn't want to just take a replica of our 50-page PDF report and put that on the web, right? We wanted to considerably downsize the content. So we went from an average of 40 pages per audit report. I mean, that was just the average. We had some that went much larger and a few that went smaller, right? But that's, that's kind of the average, down to about a 15-page report. That's our new average. So we cut out uh, a considerable amount, a considerable amount of content there. Um, our our reading level went from an average of 14 uh, to an average of 10. So we dropped four grade reading levels. Um, and so as that's been done very intentionally, we use Hemingway editor and other things to help us write more simply, more directly, right? Um, so we so we not only went all electronic, which means then you can open up in any web browser at any time very easily and have everything scalable and have a lot more interactivity and all this other type. You can you know push our podcast will show up on your phone. You can click and start listening to it just like that, right? Um, but it's also we also in that effort downsized it, right? We made it slimmer, sleeker. We got rid of details that we didn't think really mattered, and that was really that was tough. Auditors don't like to leave out detail, right? We're very detail oriented people. Um, but again, that was through that customer service lens, right? It's not about us. It's not about what's valuable to us. It's about what's valuable to our, our customer, which in this case is a busy Kansas legislator. Like what do we need to provide for them that's going to be useful to them and their policymakers? It's, it's not about what we would want as auditors, it's about what they need to do their job. So yeah, our students in, in my policy analysis class, we use the the audits that you produce. And I think the the assignments that they they produce as a result of the sleeker ones in the podcast have been a lot better. They're able to comprehend a lot more about what's going on in those in those things. They they like them a lot better than they. It was a, for some of them, it was a, it was a slog, but to go through the long ones. But and you know, you mentioned that. I just jump on that real quick. One of the things that's fascinating to me is we're we're getting so much more nuanced questions from legislators, right? And we were asking why is it our, they never tore into our reports like this? Like they have all these really insightful, like hard questions, right? 
And we realize it's because they're comprehending it better, right? So they're putting all the pieces together and then they're bringing their expertise and their knowledge of the subject. And they're asking us really good, like challenging questions because they're, it's just easier for them to get, right? So we've, we've recognized, I mean, in some ways that makes our job harder, right? Because before when it was really long and kind of obtuse, it was, <laughs> it was hard for them to like put us on the spot. And now because they're getting it, they're like, well, okay, I see what your report's saying now very clearly, but I'm not sure I agree with this part, or I don't understand how you say this on, on page three and this on page six, right? And we're like, well, you guys never used to, <laughs> never used to put those things together. So I, I think it is helping with comprehension, which is great, right? That's the, that's the idea. That's, yeah, that's so great. I think just kind of making the information more accessible, um, user-friendly, you know, kind of, like you said, interactive as well. It can just really improve communication, you know, in both yeah. directions, I think. Um, as you said, you know, you feel like they're understanding more, but then they can also respond and, and, and that can certainly create some kind of innovative solutions. Um, building off of this, I guess, you've talked a lot about how you've changed, um, your, your workplace has changed the way you present information um, to your, you know, constituents being the legislators. I was wondering how you've seen the workplace change, you know, maybe in the last five, 10 years, whatever, um, just how, how the workplace, how your workplace has modernized um, in recent history. And I mean, and you can certainly comment how COVID has affected that as well, because obviously it does, but just more generally too, how the workplace has continued to modernize. Sure. So, you know, to me, a, a key factor in being able to provide our customers with the best product and service available is that we've got to have some of the most talented people, right? And to have the most talented people, I feel very strongly, you have to create a very good work environment because, you know, there's a lot of other places talented people can go. So, and that's been a longstanding philosophy, fortunately, for this office for many, many, many years. Uh, we've had that in place before I was even in charge. I think that's been a, a real strength of this office and we've always looked to those more modern practices. So for us, fortunately, unlike a lot of our colleagues in, in, the, in audit shops across the nation, right, they were not as well prepared for COVID as we were because they had not yet embraced the idea, for example, of work from home, right? We'd embraced that seven years ago, eight years ago. So we, you know, when it came to working from home for COVID, we took what was fairly routine and we just made it the norm, right? So like we, we do a lot of this anyway, so now we're just going to open it wide open. It's already been pretty wide open. Now we're just like no, no limits, no holds barred, right? Um, but, you know, to give you a little a sense of our organization, we're fairly small. We only have 26 individuals here. They're all highly educated. We set the bar very high in terms of who we hire. So, uh, you know, we, 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 we've actually modernized even our selection process the last couple of years. We now run everybody through a set of exercises, right, that we evaluate beforehand. So we used to do that only for the people that made it past like our resume screening and transfer process. We, we literally flipped the switch, right? And we actually, one of my brilliant audit managers was like, hey, how come we're doing that at the end of the process instead of putting that at the beginning, right? So we can assess everyone. So now instead of only having people, you know, five people take those exercises out of 50, we have all 50 take that set of exercises and we identify the ones that score the best, right? So we're just getting way better coverage there. Um, so we, we modernize that. That's all automated through our website. So we've had some automation on that side that's made that a lot easier. So it's all, you know, people can go after we monitor applications at all times. So even at the, at the very beginning stages, I think our, our, our workforce has been modernized a little bit, a, bit, a little more savvy to try to get the, the right people, the people, the right stuff for our work, right? In the door. 
once they get here, even though we set that bar high, I mean, that to us has become an increasingly important part of how we think, right? We don't want to waste people's time. We know we're only dealing typically with pretty intelligent people here. So we don't want to, you know, and, and if they're not successful here, it's almost always just a matter of fit, not because they're not competent or smart or have a lot to offer, right? So our goal has been to set that bar high, but once people clear that bar, then once they arrive here, right, we open the doors pretty wide open. So for example, we have no core hours. I don't require anyone to come in at any any given time, right? So you work whenever you want to work. We have no timesheets. People don't don't contribute based on timesheets. They base it's based on their deadlines and evaluations after project, right? So no one tracks time here. Um, you can work from home anytime, anywhere. You can dress however you want, whenever you want, right? So our, our guidance is kind of, you might hear this like in the, the Netflix side of things. It's like dress like a professional, right? So if you're going to meet with a legislator, you need to be in a suit. If you're talking with your colleagues, you can be in jeans, right? Like I'm not, we don't have dress charts and any of that type of stuff. It's like, you know, uh, we get a lot of autonomy there. So we've really opened that all up. Everyone's got technology. We all got webcams. We've all got Zoom phones, right? So our phone numbers now, we got rid of all of our desk phones. All of our phones are Zoom. So people take their laptop home with them. That's their phone. You, they can be reached anytime, anywhere. Um, you know, I've sent people home with some like extra chairs from their office because they, they have their own little like setup at home. And so they've got their ergonomic office chairs at home. Um, and, you know, today in our environment, uh, there may be four or five people in our 26-person office any given day at the most, right? Um, I was telling you that it's very, it has almost, uh, it reminds me a little bit of those old National Geographic pictures of Chernobyl, right? Like, our, I mean, the lights are all turned off, everyone's desks are here. Uh, you know, if we had vines growing around the windows, it, it would be the only thing that would make it more relevant. I mean, it's just it's just empty. But while I say that, right, work is going on. In fact, we, we're as productive today as we've ever been. We're producing as much product. And in my opinion, some of the best product we've ever produced, even though no one is physically here, they're all online. And, and even as I talk to you, right, I can see who's online. They're, they're all here, they're all available. Some of them will be gone by three. Some of them will be working till six. And they have their own schedule. I don't, we don't monitor any of that. They're just responsible to get their work done. So that's the intent, right? Is keep it, keep it as flexible and, and free for the, for the people that can do the job as possible. Um, and we find that the people that are successful here love that, right? If I took that away, uh, it'd be over. <laughs> We've just all gotten used to it. And so I just treat them like adults. Like, I don't, need to I don't need to schedule your time. I don't need to tell you what to do. You're full-blown professionals. I will give you tasks and deadlines and work, and you go complete that. And then I will evaluate the quality of the work, how you do it, when you do it, where you do it, what you're wearing when you do it. None of my business, right? I, I could care less about that anymore. Do you have a sense that um, it's either changed the sort of the quality of the individual that's working at in your organization or the sort of the degree that people are happy or working with each other? I mean, so a lot of it, you know, you may not have a lot of collaboration on, a, on an audit. Maybe you do. But do you get a sense that sort of the environment is just better sort of altogether or... Are you missing out on certain things because of this sort of different kind of environment? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, our staff, let us, I, I look at staff satisfaction every year. So we roll out a survey internally. It's anonymous. Uh, we, we operate in a pretty radically candid environment here anyway. So people can always tell me what they think and often do. Uh, that's a little unusual, I think, also about our culture. Uh, I encourage people to give me constructive, critical feedback at all times whenever they want, right? With the, with the absolute assurance there'll be no penalty, uh, you know, no, no repercussions. Management literature uh, will tell you that's impossible. I've, I've actually listened to podcasts that said, never tell your boss what you really think, right? Um, hear people do that on the daily, I can assure you. <laughs> uh, it's no holds barred. Uh, 
but that so so we have a culture where we assess that pretty frequently. So I feel pretty good that I'm getting honest and radical candor, right? Because when people don't like something here, I hear about it. They don't they don't keep that quiet, and it's not something they have to avoid around me. Um, so you know, in general, our work environment is by far one of the most frequently cited benefits of working here. People like the flexibility, right? They like the ability to schedule their work in how they want to, when they want to. They like to be able to do it at home, come into the office if they want to. They don't have to. It's not required to be in the office, especially during COVID. Um, you know, that depends on their safety, how they feel about it. We, we give them a lot of life, you know, leeway on that. I think, though, that one thing we are a little bit concerned with, and I think everyone's concerned with, is, you know, the long-term effects of this, the isolation that people are feeling. I, I know that there have been some people that have struggled I think a little bit more with just depression, mental health issues, right? Like it's a challenge, like, because they've got a lot going on in their regular life and you compound that with all of the uncertainty of COVID and what that means. Uh, I do have some concerns for, for people that work with me in terms of just long-term how you know, everyone's kind of bearing up on it for now, right? But what does this look like if we're still here a year from now, right? We've already been doing it for, for half a year. So what happens in a, another year and a half, two years, three years? Uh, that's got me nervous, right? Because I don't know that we we are designed, we're, we're all kind of handling it, but it's more like in the short term. And I'm not sure what that long-term picture looks like. So yeah, I, I do have some concerns there and no good solutions yet, really, unfortunately. So speaking of kind of some of the challenges um, presented by kind of the modernizing workplace, especially during, you know, the COVID pandemic, I mean, obviously there's opportunities. It sounds like the way you were conducting work kind of made the transition possibly a little easier because there was already a lot of remote work and, and things like that. But um, do you see any opportunities emerging out of kind of this current environment we're in, um, you know, in, in a, the eventual recovery? You know, do you see this transforming, you know, public service or the way organizations do their work? Um, do you see kind of opportunities for uh, coming from all of this <laughs> that we're in yeah. right now? Uh, man, what a great question. I mean, I, I think that's such an important question to be asking, right? Because so much of this COVID talk and discussion is all about the challenges, the negatives. You hear this term unprecedented times, you know, the new normal, all this stuff. But it's all about how stressful it is and how frustrating it is and how negative it is, right? And there's a lot of that there, clearly. But you're absolutely right. Of course, with every big change and every big challenge, there's tons of opportunity. Uh, and, and the one that I see, of course, the most clearly is state government, and I'm going to speak from the audit perspective, because that's the state government I know the best, right? So not only here in Kansas, but across the nation, we just took about like 10 years step forward in the modernization of our workplaces, like overnight, right? So, so, so many auditors were against this idea of working from home and flexible hours and flexibility in the workplace. And then COVID just was like, you're going to do it. Like, I don't care. You know, you're going to do it not only just kind of grow like overnight, you're going to do it now or you're not going to survive. Um, so it wasn't optional, right? And everyone in my, so we've been, we've been having this debate and we've been having this debate for a decade in the, in the audit environment, right? Can you really allow these type of flexes? A lot of this is the older boomer generation, right? They've been very uncomfortable with this idea. And then overnight COVID just brings work from home, remote work from home across the board to everybody like instantly, right? Uh, which I think is amazing. I, I think about all the, the employees that are going to benefit from that, right? And how much time and effort and energy would have, how long and tedious that journey would have been uh, had it not been for COVID. And now, now we've all realized, right? And so many of the people I talked to that used to be dead set against this, now that they've gone through it, they're like, oh yeah, I guess we can work from home, right? I guess we can make this work remotely. So now they don't have to be convinced because they've been through it and they've seen it work. And so it just, it, what a huge benefit to everybody in public service on the audit side, at least, to work in my profession, right? They're going to get to have a lot more work-life balance and flexibility because this was forced on all their organizations. 
Um, I think another thing that I've seen is, is like for us, it's forcing a lot of us to go to better electronic product, right? So it's making our services and our product more accessible to the public in a lot of different ways, right? So where we, you know, government sometimes can be very bureaucratic, very paper-based, where you have to come into my office and have an appointment with me, right? And I think this new way of, of working is forcing us to think of ways that we can serve, whether if your constituents, the legislature like mine, or if it's the general public, how can we do that without having them come to our office, right? Which is leading to some really interesting, I think, modernization efforts just out of necessity so that even from the public's perspective or from the customer side, I think there's going to be a lot of benefits there. Um, and then for us, I, I know in our office, we've always been forward thinking, but to me, this, this whole thing has been like the adjacent possible, right? So now that we've now that we've gone further, it's got us questioning other things that we used to think were true, but may not be, right? So it's like, we always thought you could work from home, but we thought there were limits to it. Like, well, the management team can't work from home, right? Every, everyone else in the office can, but if you're a manager, you have to be on site. Don't ask me why I believe that. I just believe it, right? Because that's how I'd always, that's how the office had already operated. So having now had my management team work very successfully six months away from the office, I don't buy that anymore. So now they can all work from home. But it gets us, it's making us question what else might be out there that we haven't seen, that we thought was true, but wasn't, that we you know, assume was just a way of practicing. I don't know what those things are, obviously, but I think there's a lot of opportunity there. We've realized how wrong we were about some things that we just were sure were right, right? And so now that we've realized we weren't right, it's making us question maybe some of those other fundamental things that will provide opportunities down the road. I think that's so important that we see it. We don't just see the challenges. We also see the opportunities of, of times like this. That's certainly um, a good way to try to look at uh, the current situation. At least now, get us. At least get us through the the, the difficulties, right? Yeah. <laughs> at least get us to feel better about it all. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry, sorry about that, Maria. No, that's all right. Absolutely. Um, and just to, you know, I think this has been just a great discussion of how kind of, you know, the public sector is modernizing and changing the way they do work and also the important work that's done by offices like yours. Um, I think this has been just a really great conversation. And I want to kind of um, transition just slightly as we kind of ask you your final couple of questions today. Um, one question that I wanted to ask you was, you know, you are an alum of the MPA program at Kansas State University, and you have been very giving of your time to the program. You come to our uh, classrooms and you talk to our current students. You've helped some of our students obtain internships um, with the legislative post audit. Um, you've participated in practitioner panels. You've served on our, you know, advisory board. Um, you know, you've been very giving of your of your time and your expertise. And so I just wanted to ask you kind of what drives you to stay so connected um, to our, pro you know, to your, our program, but the program you graduated from, you know, kind of uh, what drives, what drives that continued engagement with um, current MPA students in our program? Sure. So, you know, I think two things that come to mind. I mean, one is, you know, I just, I love public service and I found my home at the MPA program, right? It was, it was people that were interested in the things I was interested in, that were fascinated by the things I was fascinated in. So when I finally went, you know, when I showed up to my first couple of MPA program classes, I was just like, this is it, right? This is the perfect combination. It's, it's got some practical application in terms of business operations, but it's also grounded in kind of the bigger questions of how we should govern ourselves. And, you know, you can, you can look at 
you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and Weber's kind of system of like these big conceptual philosophical ideas of governing and governance. But then, but then you also are tasked with just like, you know, the regular operation of business, right? Just accounting, budgeting, actually providing services. So, you know, a lot of that, I, I remember from almost day one, just feeling like, yes, this was kind of my cognitive profession I wanted to be involved in was public service, right? Um, and then secondarily, of course, it, it's selfishness. Like I want to attract talented people. And so I know that, you know, the MPA program is, is good at putting out people like me who are interested in these things who come equipped with those skill sets. Uh, and because I want my office to be the best, right, I try to recruit actively from K-State MPA firms because I'm, I'm confident that there's a lot of talented people there. Um, so there is that, of course, selfish motivation for my office and for our future, you know, talent pool. And I'm always trying to grab people's attention and, and direct them towards us as a potential employer. Well, whatever it is, we're really appreciative of it. And we, we probably need to give your brother a, fi a finder's fee. It sounded like he pushed you, he pushed you in, in our direction. So, um, so this has been really great, like Brian said, and um, I, we like to end the, the podcast with this one last question. And if you could give some new public sector employee just a little bit of advice, I don't know, the, the Justin from 11 or 12 years ago, um, just starting off their career, what would it be? What would just be that nugget of advice? So, you know, I thought about this and I, and I have three, but I'm going to keep them short, short and sweet and quick. So the first one is don't settle for boring, mindless government jobs, right? There's a lot out there in the public sector, not just in my office, but there's a lot of cool things that government does. And there's a lot of cool state agencies in Kansas that do really innovative or kind of cool or interesting work. Um, you know, so don't, there, and there's a lot of agencies, some agencies at least that don't, right? They're, they're much more common bureaucratic, they're a cog and wheel. And I just encourage people to go find something that you find very interesting and Gauge, engages your interest because there are those opportunities in government and you shouldn't settle for just the standard bureaucratic form. There's a lot more out there. Um, secondarily, and this is almost in order of least to most important in my mind, you want to get definitely comfortable with quantitative information. I have a book recommendation, what I'm reading right now. Uh, it's called uh, Calling Bullshit, uh, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World by Carl Bergston and Jevin West. Fantastic. It, it basically sums up the audit profession uh, in, in one book, right? Everything I've ever learned about auditing and why it's important and how you think about information quantitatively uh, is there. Uh, all the fallacies that you see about fake news and how to detect and make sure that you're thinking about things independently and correctly and accurately. Um, lots of good ideas there. I think that's really important that we get comfortable, even if you don't have a quantitative background, thinking quantitatively, right? And being able to assess quantitative arguments. Um, and then the last one for me is focus on your writing, right? That, that is just something, I mean, we write day in, there, there's not a government job that I know of that doesn't require you to write well, write simply, write directly, be able to communicate and articulate your ideas in clear, concise, logical, rational manner. And like, it's just, it's so fundamental to every function part of government um, that to me, I, you know, it's, it's always something because all the other skills we can teach, right? We do teach it. So we can teach you how to use software and how to do complicated analytics. And we can teach you about Power Query in Excel and how to use Tableau and GIS and all that stuff. But it's real hard for us to teach people how to write, right? If they, if they don't have that background. So those are my top three. Don't settle. Get used to quantitative information and, and work on your writing. Well, I think you're uh, selling things that we've been pushing uh, 
uh, actually pretty recently. So <laughs> I think that's that's Lost pretty bro. great. Yeah. <laughs> yes, pretty I, great. Had a, I had a very similar thought. I thought, well, this is great because we have certainly been emphasizing the need for clear communication, whether that's through writing, um, presentation, as well as data visualization and management. So this is yeah. truly wonderful. Yeah, this has been great. And we'll put we'll post links to the, the your office, your the various mm -hmm. audits, the reports and the podcast and the link to uh, the book you were you're mentioning. So people can mm -hmm. sort of check those out. I think those would be really great. And so yeah. and I might just end by saying, of course, if, if your students ever have uh, that are listening to this, have any constructive criticism for us, we're glad to take it. Right? We realize they look at the world maybe differently even than some of our customers. So if they read our reports or listen to our podcast and they have suggestions for improvement, I'd be glad to hear them. So send those our way. All right. Well, we will. We'll, we'll we'll push them to sort of email you. Not constantly, but we'll. Yeah, can't, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so, all righty. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And uh, this has been great. Thanks. Yep. Thank you both. It's been a pleasure.